0: Markets are turbulent, inflation is soaring, wars and supply chain shocks are threatening our way of life. We hear it all over the news. There is nowhere to hide. But is it really true? Bad news just keeps getting dumped on you by the oh-so-average media. But we at Not Your Average Financial Podcast believe you deserve something better. We don't believe in wishful thinking or burying our heads in the sand, but we do believe in telling you like it is and showing you a way out. Could it be that there are some safe havens, some opportunities and even possibilities available in this current economic climate? Attend our virtual Not Your Average Financial Summit to know if there's truly nowhere to hide and to discover strategies to help you win in any economy. So come and build up your financial reserve, fight back against inflation, save on taxes, and prepare for your future. The two-day, not-your-average financial summit is happening virtually, so attend anywhere. Add these dates to your calendar now while it's fresh on your mind. It's gonna be Friday, September 30th, and October 1st, 2022. Each day starts at 1 p.m. and goes to 4.30 p.m. Central Time, so please adjust to your time zone. The event is absolutely free, but the tactics and strategies you'll get are priceless, and it's only made available to members of our Not Your Average Financial community. So get exclusive access to our summit at notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. That's notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. See you there. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, episode 264. What will you do when you're 82? With Lester Himmel. Hey, everybody, welcome to this week's episode. You know, I was just spending some of my beloved pastimes on the dear YouTubes, and it got me thinking do I believe everything I hear on YouTube? What about you? Do you believe everything you hear on the interwebs? Do you subconsciously believe that YouTube is the fount of knowledge, of wisdom, just streaming out with unswerving truths and nothing else? Of course not. We certainly look to the internet for insights into how to clean our dryer vent. How to pickle a cucumber but what about your money are you willing to hand over your money to financial pundits your mind to financial pundits and gurus on the interwebs realize that these financial gurus do not have a dog in your fight and they have no responsibility whatsoever for you if financially things go sideways and you lose some money due to their poor investment advice financial opinion makers on youtube And on the radio and elsewhere would love to tell you that you can fall off your horse and get 12% a year on your mutual funds. But if we look at the value of the S&P 500 over the last, say, 35 years, simple math tells us and it helps us see that it's just plainly false. 12% a year is pure fiction. If you want more of these juicy details, that's what we get into in today's episode. Now, we won't just be peeling back the lies that you might have heard on YouTube or CNBC or some of the other um, oh-so-average financial media out there, but we're going to be talking not just about the lies of Wall Street, but also why it matters for you and your family. It could be the difference between retiring in style and not retiring at all. You see, the difference between having the life of your dreams or still being stuck at your day job in your later years dreaming about your so-called life is the difference between truth and fiction. So we've got to figure this stuff out now while you still have the time. So that's going to be the topic of our episode. But who is the who? Our guest today, Lester Himmel, discovered the use of specific types of cash value life insurance to expand and enhance the performance of investment portfolios he set up for himself and clients years ago. This was after spending 28 years in a variety of positions on Wall Street. So he knows of what he speaks when he talks about the lies of Wall Street. Now, like most financial professionals, he considered stocks, bonds, and similar instruments as the core of a reasonable investment approach. But in these last several years, Les says he's found a better way. Les comes to this field with a very broad financial background. He started as a compliance officer, worked in administration. He was an institutional bond trader, developed an emerging markets business, and was also very involved with alternative investments. Les prefers low risk and guarantees and has an ability to simplify explanations of the what, why, and how of financial products and investments. Now, Les Himmel has been on our show before and keen listeners of our podcast will know that on episode 52 and 53, Les Himmel was a guest of our show where he covered a number of different topics, including volatility. And I definitely recommend folks go back and listen to that episode as well. Since he covers so much ground, we had to break it up into a two-parter. In part one, we're gonna cover the false claim that you can get compound growth in something like the stock market or in the bond market. And then hang tight for next week's episode, we're gonna be talking about some strategies where you can find true compound growth, as well as limit your volatility as you enter your later years in life. I won't make you wait any longer for this interview. Take it away, Les. Les, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. Good to be here. There is a proliferation of financial pundits and gurus out there in the universe. I just got done telling everybody why we all should listen to you, Les. But you also get your insights and information from sources, including the wonderful and always correct YouTube, right? Always correct. No misinformation on there. What were you listening to over the weekend that caused this conversation to start exactly right here regarding investments, compounding, retirement, and why it all still matters? Well, that's a broad question that I
2: have a very passionate uh, approach to volatility and the way it affects investments. My background, as you've pointed out, has to do with Wall Street. I was a bond trader, ran trading desks. I did a number of things that at this point I can look back on it. And I believe it gives me a very different view of a lot of different things, but it also falls in line with my personality. I question almost everything. And what I saw on YouTube was a um, a video entitled Why Investment Compounding Still Matters in Retirement. And it's very hard to argue with that. It absolutely Mm -hmm. matters. The problem is that the material, the vehicles that the gurus lean on are questionable. Now that requires a bit of an explanation. Stocks, Bonds, mutual funds, isn't that the standard? And the answer is, yeah, it is the standard, but we should be questioning it. So what this gentleman has been pointing out in this video is that the S&P, the Standard and Poor's Index, over the last 35 years has returned an average of 12%.
0: So over the last 35 years, an average of 12% return. Yes. Got it. And I would question that. In fact,
2: I do question that. The calculation I quickly ran, I looked back 35 years and
0: I found that the S&P, the index, was at a level of roughly 290, 35 years ago. 290 points of the S&P 500, 35 years ago, okay. And today it's roughly what, 4,100 as we speak. The,
2: what's called the cumulative rate of return, that is I calculate starting point, end point, what interest rate with compounding in a smooth fashion gets me from A to B. And the answer I calculated to be 7.89. Now let's round it to eight percent. Eight percent doesn't look like 12 percent. So one digit less. versus two digits. The easy way to check my arithmetic, or any guru's arithmetic, any pundit's arithmetic. Good word. Any arithmetic is to simply take the starting point and multiply it by that figure. That is, in this case, 290 times 1.12 for 112 percent of what you started with in this case, 35 times. So 290 becomes 324.8 in the first year, then it becomes 363.7 and so on, 35 times. And what I ended up with after 35 years was
0: 15,311. So just to clarify what you're saying is this math experiment, which any nine-year-old could do, means that our S&P 500 index should be, tell me again the number, Fifteen thousand three hundred and eleven, and it's not. It's a lot less. It's today, as you and I record, as you mentioned. It's four thousand one hundred. Right. So that's a big difference. Huge. Help us put this in terms of dollars. If I have a retirement account thirty-five years ago, and I was expecting twelve percent returns, help me out. That's I would have had three times as much money today as I would as I actually have, if I had truly gotten a twelve percent flat consecutive straight line projection from 35 years ago to today, instead of my 300 grand in my IRA, I would have had close to a million bucks. Is that what you're saying? In essence,
2: in essence, that is what I'm saying. Let's put it in terms of a simple dollar standing. I started with hundred dollars and my guru is telling me that you will get an average 12% over the next 35 years. What that means to me is my hundred dollars grows to based on this arithmetic, something like $375. Mm. Well, now I take that figure and I incorporate it into my planning. I'm going to have this much money. So when I know that I'm going to have this result, or at least I think I will, along the way, I feel free to do a variety of things. Don't keep me on course for that result because Mm. the
0: result is fiction. I'm saving less money because I think I'm going to get a higher return. Is that kind of what you're getting to? Yeah. That's what I'm getting to. So the idea of
2: Allowing ourselves to fall into the use of these vehicles, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, again, the standard, with the assumptions made by these statements about such as 12% puts us on very shaky footing,
0: but we use it as concrete footing. I was just reading some statistics for another project I'm working on. and According to the U.S. census data, the average net worth of an American over age 65 is only 170000 bucks. Right. And their income is only thirty-eight grand a year. Now, how long will that last? Right? It, how long do we expect that'll last? And is that what they expected thirty-five years ago when they were being told, "Just put it all in the market; it's going to be okay"? Exactly. This has dire consequences. This is not just math fun with math. This has dire, true consequences to people's parents, their grandparents, their themselves as they get closer and into their retirement years.
2: Yeah. I, let's put it into perspective. Based on, well, you've heard my, my discussions in the past. When we look at what the stock market has done over the years, let's reach back all the way back to 1928. The Dow Jones Industrial Average from 1928 to 1980 did very little. Now it grew for sure. And we know we had some really tough years prior to World War II, but it grew in comparison to what it's done over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, it grew very little. From 1980 to 2000, the stock market grew by leaps and bounds, rocket to the moon. Now, let me put it into numbers. The cumulative rate of return, that is again, interest from point A to point B, straight line with compounding, from 1928 to 1980 was less than 4% growth during that period. From 1980 to 2000, it was just under 14%. From 2000 to today, It's somewhere around 5%, give or take where we are because we've had a great deal of volatility. And that's the next point. The volatility that we're seeing in comparison to what used to be the case, now the market's always had volatility, but over the last 20 years, huge volatility. And that brings up another point. When you're looking at a statement like the S&P index has returned an average of 12% over the last 35 years, What does it really mean to the man on the street does he really care probably not but here's what should matter when you look back at volatility over the last 35 years if you've been saving that there were ups and downs in the market but did you care if you were accumulating your cash if you were saving and the answer is probably not but the reason is important probably not because you were hearing don't worry stay the course you're young you have time but you really didn't care because you had an income along the way you weren't reliant on that saving on that money to pay your bills in retirement it's a different story in retirement you're you're going to use that money specifically to pay your bills so when you have volatility when you have to look for a recovery and you're hoping for that recovery you're always going to be looking for recoveries with less and less money because you're paying your bills out of that fund. So the idea of a 12% return, all right, that's fiction on the way up. On the way down, it's even more dangerous. So what we have to really discuss is what is it that we can use, that we can rely on in retirement, and how do we get there?
0: Fair? Mm, Yeah, the income in your working years is sort of like a shield against this volatility. and. We see our account statements, and maybe we feel poor when we look at it in a down year, maybe we feel rich, but it doesn't impact us doesn't matter at the grocery store. But what you're saying is, it immediately becomes very real. It's no longer just an imaginary account statement that we happen to throw in a desk drawer. It has dramatic implications to if we can buy our medications, our groceries, see our grandkids, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Is that what I hear you saying?
2: And that trip to Fiji that you've been dreaming about. That's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the have-nots and the have-yachts. So somebody is making a ton of money here, right? Anytime there's a loss in the market, it's because someone else sold and someone else bought. So who's making out here? And why do we keep getting this information? I'll call it misinformation, to put it nicely, from Wall Street. Like, why do they keep giving us false information? about what we can expect the market to do for us? What's in it for them? That might be an easy question.
2: Yeah, it's. let me give it a, uh, a little bit of a cynical answer as well as what I think is legitimate. Number one, I don't believe all the investment advisors out there understand what we're talking about. The idea of volatility to them, an average return is an average return. The reason that they use it so easily, they are confusing the word return with the word change. And when, for example, the Dow goes up 1%, that's a 1% change. If we apply that to a number of years, five years, 10 years, 30 years, whether it's the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P, the Russell, it doesn't matter. Change is the first derivative from the actual event that is the cash move. That is a $1 dollar becomes a dollar and a half or a dollar becomes 50 cents. The rather, conf- confuse the issue. The point is that The gurus out there, the advisors in particular are paid to bring in assets. They're not paid on returns. They are paid to accumulate money and keep it in management. That's how they get paid. So in a cynical way, that's the reality for them. For us, for the people that actually allow them to manage our money or to put it into some sort of a, a fund. All we're concerned about is the return, the actual dollars, but we're hearing the same thing. And we don't go to school every day to learn more and more about Wall Street. We didn't get educated in high school about what the S&P is doing. The idea of simply allowing the expert to give us the information, people that we characterize as an expert, that's what we're all about. Mm -hmm. Everybody, in a very practical way, we want to lean on the experts in whatever we do we go to a doctor we go to a surgeon we go to a mechanic we go to people that know more about a specific problem or item than we do mm-hmm. and the same is true for investments the mm-hmm. idea of leaning on some guy that sells 401k plans to the employees at ibm does he really understand investments does really he really get into the nitty gritty of everything
0: that's involved in, in making sure that you make it to retirement with a given fund? Of course not. So Lesa, I want you to describe your. what is the definition of compound growth? And then does the stock market give us compound growth? And also does the bond market give us compound growth? The answer is no. What is compound growth? If we put $100
2: into a savings account with a bank, and let's imagine for a moment that we're getting 3% interest on our money, compounding means in the first, after one year, our $100 is worth $103. If we then allow it to go for a second year, our $103 becomes $106.20, or and, yeah, $106.20, sorry, and so on, interest on interest. As our money grows, it grows its own money in turn. Growth, on the other hand, as opposed to compounding, that's a little different. And the easy example is if I have a 57 Chevy parked in my driveway and it's worth $40,000 and a year later, it's worth $50,000, I don't have more of the same. I just have something worth more money. Mm. That's growth, that's not compounding. If on the other hand, my 57 Chevy became one and a half 57 Chevys, okay, now I'm compounding. Another example is I have an oak tree in my yard, and it's dropping acorns every year. And those acorns sprout more oak trees. Now I have compounding.
0: If, on the other hand, the oak tree is simply growing a foot a year, that's growth. That's a very helpful picture of the difference between growth and compounding. Thank you for that. You know The difference of a multiple, multiplying entity like, a, like an oak tree versus just um, the size of that tree getting bigger. That's a big difference. Now, how does that play into our portfolios? And well, know, what about bonds as, as well?
2: We'll get to bonds in a yeah, second
0: because okay. that's a bit more complicated. But
2: one more example that I would like people to think about, if I have IBM stock or XYZ stock, any company, and the company declares a dividend of 17 cents a share and they send me a check for $14, is that compounding? No, mm. it is potential growth. I get more money, but I still have the same number of shares. If on the other hand, they declared every three shares gets an additional share. So instead of 300 shares, I now have 400 shares. That's compounding. More of the same. And it gives me a bigger and broader base. Is stock splits,
0: is that that compounding? It could be considered compounding if there's growth involved, but certainly it's more shares. More shares, but it's not like the company just automatically became more
2: profitable. No, but compounding doesn't necessarily rely on the value of the company. Mm. of the growth of the share price certainly does. Got it. Now, before we go further, bonds and mutual funds by and large do not compound. You can get more money, you can get some more growth. If there is a declaration of shares attached to shares, then yes, that's compounding. With bonds, by the way, mutual funds don't compound. With bonds, it gets a little bit more complicated in that we have to step back a second. When we buy a standalone bond or when an investment manager buys a bond for us, they do it based on a comparison of value. And the comparison is called yield to maturity, YTM. Now the YTM calculation is a complicated calculation that relies on the following the computer in calculating that yield to maturity will look at the purchase price the eventual return of cash, that is when the bond matures, I get my money back, it's an IOU. And along the way, what income comes to me in the form of interest or coupon, as it's called. So for example, if I have a 5% interest rate on a bond, the smallest round lot bonds, as it's called, is a $1,000 bond. So a 5% interest rate per year gives me $50, $1,000, 5%, 50 bucks. And in the United States, most bonds, corporate bonds, treasuries, and so on, generate that interest payment to me, the investor, twice a year. So if I'm getting $50 per bond, I get $25 every six months. Now, the computer knows my purchase price, knows the end point, might get my money back, and along the way, the $25 every six months per bond. What it assumes to make that calculation of yield to maturity is that $25 gets reinvested at the original investment rate. So if I buy a bond with a 5.3 yield to maturity, the computer assumes that my $25 check gets reinvested at 5.3% every six months. And the interest on my $25 also gets reinvested at 5.3% and so on and so on and so on every six months until the bond matures.
0: Let me just break in for a quick second, Les, because this is great and I want you to keep going. So when I bought my bond, the world was giving a a signal that 5.3% is a reasonable interest rate for my bonds. And so I purchased my bond at 5.3%, the going agreed upon interest rate at the time. And what you're saying is most calculators out there and most financial advisors who are advising their clients Uh, are assuming that that bond portfolio is gonna do the same interest rate that they assumed at the beginning, next year, and the next year, and the next 35 years. Am I I following you so far? And every interest payment to me gets invested at that same rate to give me the result that the computer suggested when I bought the thing. It seems like you're saying, and you're dipping your toe into reinvestment rate risk. Is that kind of where I hear you taking this? It is that, exactly. And it's a little simpler in
2: that, when you buy a bond and you have a yield to maturity calculation done upfront to give you the idea of what you're getting for your money, it's, in, it's fiction. The reason it's fiction is because imagine you buy a $1,000 bond, you imagine 5.3% yield to maturity, and you're going to get $25, and you're going to have 5.3% at the end of the game. You're not, because every time you get a $25 check, it goes nowhere. You can't find 5.3% on $25 investments or 1.3 cent investments or whatever it happens mm. to be along the way. Cuz so you can't what you buy read,
0: a bond for $25, is that what you're saying? It's too. You can't too
2: buy small. a 5.3% bond for $25 for sure. Yeah, and smaller. So the point is that What you end up with is simple interest, not compound interest. Therefore, bonds do not compound per se. Mm. And when someone asks, oh, yeah, but if we do it with a mutual fund and we have a big chunk of bonds, it's the same story. It's just a question of size. The idea of compounding is a a major question for all conventional investments. Now, if you have a zero coupon bond, and we can get into that if you like, but basically there's accretion, decretion, and goes up and down and so on, a little bit different, but still. It doesn't work the way people imagine, including the investment advisors.
0: Wow. Once again, an amazing, breathtaking episode with Les Himmel. Thank you, Les, for coming on our show. And guys, hang tight again for part two coming up next week. You know, there's always just something very special when I get to talk with Les uh, and Les's ability to make distinctions. I really believe that in Les's heart and in his mind, words truly matter, especially when it comes to money and finances. And so I suggest we make a distinction between growth and compounding. And let's be clear about what we mean there. He brought up the idea of an antique car. If I have an antique car in my garage and it's worth $40,000 today, and it grows next year to $50,000, it's not like I have more car. You know, my convertible didn't just grow into an SUV, for example. No, I just have a more valuable car. It went from 40 grand to 50 grand. And what caught me in this is the distinction between that and compounding, where we talk about the compound growth of certain assets and the linear change between one year and the next of the stock market or the bond market. Now, speaking of bond market, I have an early memory of how bonds were kind of used in the bank-on-yourself world. In fact, I had a number of people tell me as I was trying to describe bank-on-yourself early on in my career as a financial professional, I had several folks say to me, Mark, hey, I don't need this bank on yourself thing. I'll just go invest in the bonds myself. So what do I need this insurance for? I'll just cut out all those nasty insurance expenses and just go invest in bonds. But the truth is you cannot just go and invest in bonds like the insurance company does. For one thing, I don't have 50 to 100 million dollars a week to dump into bond purchases the way a giant insurance company does. And next, I don't have the attention to pay attention to the bonds and make a rational investment choices like a fleet of bond investors and portfolio analysts might have that can be employed by a large insurance company. And besides that, it doesn't truly compound like the whole life cash value does. Now, how many people have bonds in their portfolio listening to this? You probably do. If you've got a 401k or IRA Even if you just have a bunch of index funds or target date funds, there's going to be some bonds purchased baked into those. Okay, and we're all being told that, you know, when we invest in a bond, let's say that there is some sort of fixed interest rate and that somehow we can reinvest our coupon payments back into additional bonds at that same interest rate. The same interest rate that we got when we secured our original bond investment. But therein lies the rub. There's the catch. And as Les talked about in this episode, there are two catches here. The first is that the interest rate will change from the time I bought my bond, let's say three years ago, and over the duration of my payments of that bond, say over these last three years. So the interest rates are not fixed, they're not steady. But I'm being told when I buy that bond, that I'll be able to reinvest those coupon payments at the exact same interest rate that I bought my large lump sum bond with. Okay, the second catch is that no bond can be purchased with a coupon payment at the same rate or price that I used to buy my original bond purchase. What does that mean? It's the same thing you experience at Costco. When you walk in and buy in bulk, you sometimes can get a great deal, and your original bond purchase price might be $10,000, but your coupon payment, the one that you get semi-annually twice a year, might only be 25 bucks. So do you think you're really going to get the same sweetheart deal on your interest rates that you got when you had your large $10,000 to plunk down? Of course not. Again, it's the same thing as the Costco experience or Sam's Club experience. When you buy in bulk, you're going to get a better interest rate. And the larger your purchase price of your bond, the better the interest rate you're going to get. So that's just some of Les's mind. He's got a lot more to share in our next episode. And he gets to some powerful and I think unique strategies and solutions that help us really take advantage of this powerful thing called compound growth. Remember the famous physicist Albert Einstein said that uninterrupted compound growth is the most powerful force in the universe. It's the eighth wonder of the world. So hang tight with us. We're going to talk about how you can grasp a hold of that rocket ship of uninterrupted compound growth with your financial portfolio. But I got to make you wait one whole week for part two with Les Himmel. Until then, thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your economy, and your future.